You're listening to C3 Church Vancouver Podcast. We know you'll be blessed by this message. <laughs> Thank you, Fletch. Thank you, Patty. It's really lovely to be here. So wonderful. And as I see so many of you, I was reminded when I was your age, you know, I became a Christian 44 years ago. Oh, and I thought, well, I said, and, um, and, and life with God is better every day. And it doesn't look like 44 years at all. And uh, I'm so blessed to know God and to walk with him. And I just encourage you young people, keep walking with him and loving God. Because life is so good with him. So good. Never forget that. <laughs> That's enough. Well, it was in 1995 that I first met Fletch and his family. You realize that? He was taking a camp. It was Easter camp. Fantastic time there. Can't remember a thing he preached. <laughs> but I tell you what, <laughs> you know exactly where it's going. At the mealtimes, you'd sit near him, and the jokes were fantastic. I tell you what, I can still remember the jokes and his acting them out. So you did impart something to us. Must admit that. Yeah. So just to give you a little background of um, what uh, Fletch hasn't said is that uh, we've been married for 40 years. Yeah, 40 years, not 44. 40 years. And uh, we do have three children, twin boys and one girl, our eldest son, who's Eurasian because my wife's Chinese um, and I'm European. Uh, Just in case you wonder what Eurasian was, just, uh, I've got to assume you know nothing, okay? Uh, He married a Persian. My second one married an Anglo-Burmese and she is so mixed it's not worth even going into it. And my daughter married a Vietnamese. On top of that, we have two what we call semi-adopted. In other words, they're part of our family, but not legally adopted. A Vietnamese girl who was a Buddhist monk from the age of 10 till about 25. And uh, a Nepalese girl that was given to us when she was eight years old in Nepal. And we brought her to Australia when she came to university. And she studied, became part of our family, and now has married a, a great young man in the church. All these ones came from our church, not from outside the church. So it's a multicultural community. We have every nation in the world represented in our church. Uh, but North America is the, the smallest one, I just admit that. So if anyone is planning to move, great, move to Australia and yeah, wants to join a church, this one is very happy to see you become part of it. So that's the background, just to give you an idea of where we come and who we are. Um, I want to share something today which... Uh, I believe is, um, it's foundational to, to what I see and, and how I believe God wants to work. Um, and I want to actually do it a bit like we've been a first century church. Would you like to go back to the first century this morning? Because in the first, first century, only 10% of the population could read. So you didn't take your Bibles to church because a Bible is too expensive to have. Uh, and by the way, they didn't have Bibles in those days because the word hadn't really been written in the first century. It's, well, halfway down, but it was just too expensive. So you came and you listened to the preacher. Uh, but I know you've all got Bibles, so I will give you scripture references if you want them so you can 
understand what I'm saying. You know, one, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, I think, is one of the greatest uh, scriptures to give us an insight into uh, what God's plan is, what his heart is. And I'm reading it in the New Living Translation because I think it does it so well. It says, even before he made the world, that's not just this earth, the whole cosmos, the Bible says, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into uh, his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. You know, the intention of God from the very beginning is to adopt you into his family. You know, God was not looking around and saying, I need a family, therefore I want to create some human beings and make them part of my family. He said he was adopting us into his family. Therefore, God was family before even creation happened. Do you realize that? Family is not an institution God created for mankind. It is the very nature of God. And God says, I want to adopt you into this family so that you become part of my family. You know, when you think about that and then start to uh, unpack it and look at it in how that affects what we do in our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, it actually is actually takes you on a very different journey to where most people in Christendom are going. I'm going to preach a bit like a Chinese style today. You know how the Chinese preach? Okay. The Westerner is point one, point two, point three, and conclusion. Chinese, you have the subject here, you start from the outside and come in, then you start from the outside. And it looks quite confusing, but it'll actually all work out in the end. Okay, just to let you know, where is this guy going? You, you may be asking, well, that's how I'm going. So just giving you experience, which is not your normal. I know uh, Fletch often looks like he's preaching that way. It's just because he's mic'd up. <laughs> it's good to have the pulpit, you know, because you can say things that can't be, sto- yeah, can't be stopped. You know, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, we do have a, a scripture. It's at the end of the time when Peter has come to the house of Cornelius. He starts to preach. The Holy Spirit falls, and uh, you know, things happen, just like in the day of Pentecost. And it's, it's interesting because God does that for two reasons. One, because he wants these people to be saved. But two, he's teaching Peter something very, very, very important. You see, before that, he was in the uh, upper room, uh, and he had a vision of uh, fantastic food. If you're Chinese, fantastic food. If you're a Jew, not so fantastic. Um, and he was told to take and eat. And I love this, but he was told to take and eat. And he says to God, no, uh, it's not lawful for me. You see, here is the God who created the law telling him to do something, and he says no, because he's following the law of God, not the God of the law. Very it's a very challenging one when you think about it. Here God, almighty God, tells them to do something. He says, no, because your word tells me not to do it. Well, this is God who created the You understand what I'm saying? So here he has this confusion, and he comes to the house of Cornelius. He brings people with him, not to help, but to prove he does nothing wrong. Now, this is a Jew. You know, the, the Jewish person, uh, a Gentile, is, is the lowest. You know, his prayer is, Father, I thank you that I'm not a Jew. A Gentile, and then or a Samaritan, then he'd turn and spit on the ground and say, "Or a woman." That was a Jewish prayer. Um, so this is his background. He comes into the house. God moves, 
And to his credit after that, the Bible says he stayed several days. Now, what does that mean? It simply means this, that if you're a Jew, you never stay more than 24 hours in a Gentile home. If you do, you're saying to the Gentile, you are equal to me. And this is what Peter did. He said, you are equal to me. And he says this, now I know God has no favorites. Here is a man who believed he was favored of God because he was a descendant of Abraham. And he says, now I know God has no favorites. That is so important. You see, and that brought a question to me when that struck me. It says, well, then why does God choose someone? If God has no favorites, on what grounds does he choose someone to use him? And my thought went back to the person of Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham? You see, there must have been something about Abraham that God saw in him that says, yes, I can use this man. And I want to suggest to you this morning, if we have what Abraham has or had, then God will use us. Do you want God to use you this morning? Because God doesn't have any favorites. It's not that he looked down upon Fletch and saw a wonderful man there and said, that's the one that I'm going to use because he's so handsome. And so... You've changed a lot, haven't you? Yes. I remember when you had hair. This is good. I don't think I'm ever going to get invited back. Wonderful. So I want to look this morning when the limited time Fletch gives, gives me at, um, at uh, what are some of the keys of Abraham that, that he has that God would choose him. Because if we have those values, then God will say, I can choose that person. Would you like that today? Okay. At least one does. Anyone else like to hear this? Ah, yeah. oh, good. Two or three. Well, we're getting a revival here, brother. The first thing about Abraham, as we all know, is that he was a man of faith. You know, the great chapter on faith is Hebrews 11, isn't it? And Abraham is mentioned there as one of the examples of faith. And it starts off there now. I better get it right. Let me see if I can find it here in my notes. Mm. Yeah, I think it's about here. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the definition, and it's done in a very Jewish way. It's poetry, and he duplicates it. That's a Jewish poetry. And so anyone listening in the first century world can memorize it, especially if you're Jewish, far easier than if it's another form of writing. And so he does it that way now. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. In other words, if you're hoping for something, the evidence of that hoping is the proof of faith. Now, you know how I used to think of that? I used to think, now, if you're praying and believing for healing, then when you're healed, it proves that you had faith because you've got the evidence of faith. It's the reality that you see it happen. It's, it's done. If you're believing for a car, then if you see when the car comes, you know you've got faith because you see the evidence of it. That's how I thought it meant. And I used to preach that until I realized when it goes through the great men of faith in Hebrews 11, you know what it says? And they all died in faith, not receiving the promise. You see, faith is not there because you accomplished a certain thing. It is there because of what they see in your life. Let me explain. See, it's not the accomplishment of faith that shows you have faith, but your lifestyle that shows whether you have faith. Noah 
was a man of faith. Why? Because for a hundred years, he built an ark according to the specifications God gave him so that when the flood came, he could protect his family and those that God brought in. And how do you know he had faith? Because he lived according to what he believed. Why do you know Abraham had faith? The Bible says because he is looking for a city without foundation, with foundation whose architect and builder is God. And therefore he did not go back to the people he came from and he did not join himself to any other people. Therefore you know he had faith because he was looking for a particular community. Amen? And so this is the aspect of faith. So Abraham, we know, is a man of faith. Now let's look at this man of faith. What does it mean? Does it mean that he had great faith? You know, that he was a 99% of faith. You and I are about a 10%er, and Fletcher's about a 15%er. Okay. He's great in faith. Now this great man of faith, one day was going down to Egypt, and he looked at his wife. She was fantastic. And, yeah, that's great, but it actually is a very big problem for him too. She, even without makeup on, she was fantastic. And he said to her, look, you know, because you're so good looking, people, you know, the king may want to kill me so he can have you. So just don't say you're my wife. Say you're my sister. Now, this is the great man of faith who is highly rated in the Bible as someone of great faith. He didn't do it once. He did it twice. I think it's Abimelech, the other king. He did it too. It's the same man who couldn't have a son, so his wife suggested that he take Hagar and have a son by him. So great man of faith that he is, believing that he's going to have a son, said, okay, you're my wife, I'll obey. This is the great man of faith. You see, I don't think he is called the great man of faith because of his great strength of faith. But he is a great man of faith because what he was focused on was what made it great. He was looking for a community with foundation, or a city, a community with foundation, whose architect and builder is God. That is what makes him great. And I want to suggest to you, if that is what your vision in faith is, you're on the right track. You know, it says that all those people who are in the book of Hebrews, uh, yeah, in chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, all the great men of faith had that vision. That is the uniting thing. And they all died in faith, not receiving the promise. Why? Because it us, that must, will be fulfilled. Anyway, that's the first thing. Oh, I've got to watch my time. Second one. Abraham was a wise builder. God said to him, I'm going to bless you, make you great. I'm going to make you a great people, and through you all the ethnos. See, the word nation in the Old Testament is not nation as we understand it. It is the word ethnos. All the ethnos of the earth will be blessed through you. Got it? See, if you and I got that commissioning from God, what would we do? Well, we would set up 
a church. We would get all our young people together, have a Bible school on Sunday afternoon at 2.30 to 4.30. Uh, and we would gather them around, we would train them and we'd get them ready. And we would send them off to the nations. Wouldn't we? That's what churches do. Because we have the Great Commission that I'm going to bless you and that you are going to be a blessing to all the ethnos. Matthew chapter 28. It's the same thing. And I look at that, and I look at Abraham, what did he do? Well, in the first off, when I looked at it, he seemed to do nothing. But then you look at it again, and what did he do? He built a family. Hmm. He built a household. He built a community. Now, anyone stop to think how big Abraham's community was? He said, well, there's Abraham, there's Sarah, there's Isaac, well, there's Hagar, there's Ishmael. So that's five. Is that how big his family was? No, well then how big was it? Do you want to know? How good are you at maths? Can try. Bible says uh, when Abraham went off to um, rescue Lot from uh, the king of, I uh, forget which one, one of the kings anyway, uh, he took us. It took an army. There were 618 men, and it says they were born in his house. Oh, let's do some maths. If 618 men are born in the house, that would assume that there's about 600 women also born in the house. Isn't that right? So at least 1,200 born in the house. Now let me make another point. So these are not just slaves. So you don't train your slaves to do night fighting like these men did. Because if you fight at night, you have to be well trained. And if you train your slaves to be well, fight, well, well trained militarily, they, they will cease to be your slaves and you will become their slaves instead. So it's not slaves. These are born in his house. Okay, so that's 1,200. So if they're born in the house, there must be parents as well, right? So how many parents would there be for 1,200? 200. Let's just say that Asian families, 10 per family, or African, because I love it when Africans join your church from, from, uh, you know, from Africa, and they come in. You don't have to find a couple of seats for them. You need a whole row. It's really great for church growth. You should try it. Yeah, fantastic. So I got lost on that one. Oh, yeah. So, 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 so there'll be a, 120 parents. Is that right? 240, okay, so add that on to it, and you get, then on top of that, if you've got 600 young people, you're going to have children born to them, aren't you? Hopefully they get married first, but you're going to have children. And let's say they've become, West, uh, they've become Canadianized, so it's only two children per family now. So, go figure you're looking over 2,500 people that are part of Abraham's community. Great, isn't it? But my question is, where did they all come from? You see, Abraham was told to do three things. What were they? Leave your country, leave your family, and leave your tribe. Now, if you do that, where do the people come from? There's a hint for you. Abraham is called the father of many ethnos. See, it's not talking about what he was going to be. It is talking about what he has become. This community is the most unique community in his world. Every group 
around him is based on family relationships by DNA. This is a family based on relationships, not by DNA, but it's based on relationship only. I believe it's the first picture of what the church should be like. It is a family based on relationship. Abraham built it, a city with foundation whose architect and builder is God. There is so much more that I could go in on that one, but I'm not going to. Okay. He built a family. And you know, because he built a family, you and I are here today. Abraham was a father before he was a leader. I remember once flying back from Nepal. This is long before I took Fletch to Nepal. My first trip. And uh, as we were flying back, it's, it's an amazing uh, flight as you fly back and you're sitting on the right side and you can look over the Himalayas, amazing mountains, better than the Rockies here and better than the ones in New Zealand. Flying over and as I'm enjoying the serenity, all of a sudden the oxygen mask comes down, you know, the things, oxygen things comes down all over the plane. And my first thought was this, I should have looked at what the lady was telling us to do. <laughs> So I put it on, and like everyone else, we were struggling to know what to do. Got it on, and then all of a sudden, while we were doing that, the plane just went like that. It went straight down. It's amazing watching the reaction of people at that time. You don't know what's going to happen. They haven't announced anything. They haven't told you what's going to happen. The plane is just going straight towards the earth. Now, you know we didn't crash. I'm here today, just, to, just in case you're worried. You know, what was interesting was to see the reaction of people, but what was more interesting is to see my own reaction or what was going through my mind. The first thing at that time, I was working full-time in a job. I was pioneering a church. I had a lovely wife and still have her after 40 years. And, um, and she has me too. And um, we had three young children. What went through my mind, I didn't once think about my job. Wasn't even in the radar. The church wasn't even in the radar. It wasn't even there. My wife didn't even get a thought. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? What went through my mind was I will never have the opportunity to invest into my children and see them grow into the young men and women they should be. I suddenly realized later on that the value in my heart was not so much being a leader but being a father. Abraham was a father. There comes a time uh, in the life, and I think it's, it's either Genesis 14, 15, around there, when there is a problem between Lot's um, herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. And you know, they get into a problem, and then Abraham says to Lot, you know, we should not uh, be fighting, we're brothers. Let's make a decision. You choose where you want to go, and I'll go in the other direction. You know, when you read that, it's a nice story, but there are two things which are incorrect. And it's the two things which are incorrect which give you an understanding of what's really going on. The first one of this, of this it's not an issue of resources because that's what they're saying. They, they were quarreling over the amount of water and food where they can feed their animals. It's not an issue of resources because in the Middle East, you never eat the female animals, only the male. So your potential of growth does not stop. And so, 
in two years' time, if Abraham and Lot's flocks are the same size, they will then Abraham's flocks alone will be equal to Lot and Abraham's flock together. You understand? So therefore, in two years' time, Abraham's going to have a problem. You never hear of Abraham having a problem with resources. There's no fighting amongst his uh, herdsmen over the water or over the food. So it's not an issue of resources. It's an issue of values. The second thing is this. He said, we are brothers. That is not true. Lot is not a brother to Abraham. He is a son. He is a nephew, I know that, but in the structure of things, his father has died. Lot has taken him into a position of a son. Why did he say, we are brothers? Simply this, Abraham is setting Lot up so he can leave. Because a son and a father cannot separate, but two brothers can. And it's interesting, when that is given, Abraham has four choices. How do I work when I finish that? I'll switch this off so that I, I stop, is it? Because I, I've lost time now. <laughs> okay. So there are four choices. The first one is this is what he could say. Abraham, you are my father. I do not want to leave. We, let's find another way. That's his first choice. His second choice is simply this. Abraham, you are the head of this family. It is your right to choose first. You choose, and I will go in the other direction. The third one is this. He could say, he could say, Abraham, he could look around and say, the best land is the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. I will let Abraham have that. I will go in the other direction. And the fourth one, which is the one he chose, he said, that's the best land. I want it. That tells you exactly what his values are. You see, I look and I see two types of leaders. One, who are leaders who have a goal. And the goal is what is important. I see other leaders who are fathers. And people are important. You see, someone who is what I call a goal-centered leader, they value people for what they can offer. A father values people for who they are. He wants to see them reach his potential, their potential, where this leader wants to see people accomplish his purpose. He will eventually use people to accomplish his purpose. You know, at the end of that time, God takes Abraham out after Lot has left and shows him north, south, east, and west and says, all this I give to you. I think there's something in a father's heart and as a father leader that God knows I can invest with security everything into you. Lot accomplishes his goal. He goes into the area and very soon you find him in the best house in the city of Sodom. You know the story? He's rich, he's wealthy, he's got the house, he's got the cars, and he is living the prosperous life. It's prosperity. I'm not going to say doctrine, but it's prosperity. He's accomplished his goal. It's interesting, you go in the story. The men come, the two angels come to Sodom, and, and the people of Sodom want to take them out and have true relationships with them. And... Uh, Look at what Lot does. I cannot understand this. I'm a father. I have a daughter. And he says to the people, look, don't touch them, but here are my two daughters. They are virgins. Go and do what you want with them. How can a father do that to his daughters? I don't understand. But he has so learned to accomplish, use people to accomplish his goals that this is what he does. The end of the story, he comes to a, to a cave 
where he has lost everything. Abraham has lost nothing. He gets everything. But Lot loses everything. He's in a cave with his two daughters. Now, his two daughters now can never get married because they have no dowry. He has no money. And they have a goal. And their goal is to have children. And they have learned well from their father. And they use their father to accomplish their goals. You see, there is two types of leadership in the church. Those who are looking at a goal and looking for those who can help them fulfill that goal. And then there are the fathers who are those that want to see their children reach their potential. You see, Paul says this, you have many teachers, but not many fathers. The church needs fathers more than it needs leaders. Abraham had that value. Okay, the last point. I'm going fast. The last point about Abraham is that he invested everything he had in the next generation. Okay? This is what I see about Abraham that I think if we had these values, we will accomplish the job. You know, it's not our better programs. It's not our, you know, higher structures and and dynamics of our churches that are going to accomplish the job. It is as we get these things right, we will accomplish what God wants us to do. You know, I, I find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is like a sandwich. When I make sandwiches, I like to be able to cut my own bread, and it's thick, fresh bread. And you find that the two sides are thick, and the amount of filling is quite small, and it's like that. There's lots about Abraham. There's lots about Jacob, but so little about Isaac, isn't there? So how do you know that Abraham invested everything into his son, Isaac? How do you know that? Well, there's one story that actually gives us something, and it's the story within the story you've got to read. And it's the story all of us know is that when uh, God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. You know, I, I always couldn't understand that for a long time, um, that how could God ask us to go and kill someone? You know, it just didn't ring true, but until I was talking to a man who's a professor in New Testament studies, a good friend of mine, and uh, yeah, he just mentioned, you know, when God spoke to Abraham like that, the response of Abraham would have been, I knew this was going to happen, because In the worship of the day, you always took your first child and you sacrificed them to God. That was part of the the worship of the day. So Abraham was, I knew this was going to happen. Anyway, that's just a little freebie I threw in. You see, I have two, as you know, I have two sons. And when they were small, we used to do wrestling on the floor. You've ever done that with your kids? And and great fun, you know, wrestling. And I had two, not just one at the same time. So it was good fun. But there comes a time when you realize... If you keep this up, they're going to beat you. And no father wants to be beaten by his sons. So the time you realize that, just before they do it, it's over. There is never again a wrestling match on the floor with your sons. Got the picture? Okay. Now let's look at the picture within the picture of Abraham and Isaac going up to the place of sacrifice. How old is Abraham? Well, let's come back. How old is Isaac? Because, you see, he had Isaac at 100 years of age. Now, Isaac, we know, is carrying the wood. Do you know how much wood you need for a sacrifice? 
I've been in Nepal, they have, uh, some of the temples have weirs into the river, and they put wood on there, and then they put the dead body on, and they cremate it, and then they push it into the river. And there's this half-charred body going into the river, and uh, you know, people wash, and they drink, and everything, and the birds are eating the, the body, and, uh, and the fish, and uh, any other bugs that are there. So it's a really interesting place to go. But don't drink the water. Um, so, 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 and the amount of wood is huge. So you're going to sacrifice a body. This young man has got to be able to carry quite a substantial amount of wood. So he's not young. He's going to be around about 25 years old, which makes Abraham about 125 years old. Now, get the picture. Here is Isaac with the wood on his shoulders walking up there. You know, he's carrying it up. He's going along. And here's Abraham, his father. I better go start back here. He's 125. He carries the fire in one hand and a stick in the other. You know, yep, I'm just behind you, son. Don't go too fast. I'm coming. You got the picture? Yeah, yeah that's right. Just right. You know, so you get the picture. Now, my question is, how did this 125-year-old man manage to get this young boy, tie him up, and put him on the altar? You see, if I tried to do that with one of my sons, even at my age... That tells me, get real, Dad. No way. And I couldn't do a thing to do it, could I? See, the only way Isaac would get up on that altar is willingly, which tells you that everything that Abraham knew about God, he had invested in his son. That Isaac fully trusted both his father and the God of his father, and believed in the promise that God had given Abraham. Abraham has invested everything he knew in the next generation. You see, God didn't just choose anyone. He looked at Abraham, and he said, this is the man that can start what I want to accomplish. And the problem is, to finish what he has started, he needs the same qualities in you and I. If we are to be the people to bring to fruition what God's intention is for the world, it requires us to have the values of Abraham. Hallelujah. Amen. Can I pass it over? to your pastor. Thanks for listening. For more information, join us online at c3b.ca.